You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on how BDSM practitioners are less likely to have victim-blaming attitudes in sexual violence cases. We then launch into our first All Questions episode. We answer some of your questions from our backlog that required having their own show dedicated to them. We close with some feedback on silicone toys. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. So Vero, um, for the top of the show this week, um, you found an article on BDSM practitioners um, being less likely to have victim-blaming attitudes in sexual violence cases. And uh, I went through that, and I thought it was a fascinating article, especially given that, um, <laughs> as some of our listeners might remember, a few months ago while we were doing our BDSM topics, um, we were accused of basically... Um, being victim blaming and also like being proponents of sexual violence. So not quite accurate, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. So that was kind of a fun time. And it's funny because, you know, a few months later we find an article, um, uh, based off of research by Catherine Clement, who uh, wrote us, was the co-author of a study uh, called participating in a culture of consent may be associated with lower rape supportive beliefs. And uh, it's it's this article that was um, published in a um, UK uh, magazine. Well, I guess magazines are all now just online, like postings and media. Um, do you, do you really see much like in terms of like print media anymore, like in terms of magazines? I mean, it exists, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure who's buying them. But regardless, I think, you know, the really cool thing about this is I think some it should be kind of obvious to people who actually practice BDSM. It might not be quite so obvious to people looking in from the outside, but BDSM really is based in this idea of, a, of affirmative consent, of nothing happens until it is negotiated and discussed. And uh, this idea that there are affirmative consent norms is uh, basically part of the study that they talk about. And that that's the idea that you know, when you have affirmative consent norms in your culture, which is the culture of BDSM, you are more likely to, to uh, not really be participating in rape culture, which has uh, kind of the norm of uh, consent being assumed, right? Or consent being coming down to gender, uh, gender lines or something like that. So that's very different. And I think it's kind of important to keep in mind that uh, BDSM practitioners have a very by default, have a very egalitarian stance uh, on uh, consent until such a, such a time as this seems negotiated. So power exchange is a huge part of the BDSM community, but that power exchange does not take place and is not assumed until consent and negotiation take place. I think that's a really key thing to understand. Right. And so when we talk about um, affirmative consent, um, you might have heard the idea of no means no, and, and that's not affirmative consent. Affirmative consent is yes means yes. So when you're uh, part of the B, part of the BDSM community, um, what happens is that you pre-negotiate your scene. So you have to be in total agreement over what you're going to do. So if you don't say yes, then it's not going to happen. That's affirmative consent. And 
What's great is that um, kind of what Vera was talking about earlier, this idea of um, BDSM participants are, are less likely to have um, to fall upon uh, gender lines in terms of sexes or sexism roles. Um, there's this idea of what's called benevolent sexism, um, which is where, you know, wow, that is a loud car. Again, I don't understand how people listen to music that loud in the car, like you're going to go deaf and then you're going to have to listen to it louder and then your speakers are going to blow. Um, so the idea of um, benevolent sexism is where you put like women on pedestals where women are pure, weaker than men and need a protection, you know, things like that. And these are things that you hear, especially in cultures that focus on machismo or masculinity. And what's great about BDSM is that the the idea is that women are in as total control of their body and total control of their sexual destiny and total tr- control of their sexual decisions and like health decisions. Um, there, there's no idea of sexual uh, benevolence or benevolent sexism, uh, rather, in, in BDSM uh, because everything is pre-negotiated. Everything is fully understood ahead of time. So that really does help out in terms of having uh, sexist uh, portrayals or sexist uh, thoughts. And what the study finds is that um, even though um, you have other groups that were surveyed in this, um, young professionals, older professionals, that held slightly, we'll say, less positive views when it came to the ideas of rape culture and gender lines, um, that when it comes down to participants in BDSM, they tend to be a little bit less of a victim-blaming culture, a little bit more of a supportive culture, and definitely a culture where yes means yes. Um, the the, the you know the article kind of closes with the idea that you know it would be great if this research, if the survey would start to change stereotypical perceptions of the BDSM community because in a lot of mass media um you're seeing that BDSM is portrayed as you know something that's dangerous, something that's risque, something that's you know almost abusive especially towards women and uh, she points to 50 shades of gray especially where um, the main one of the main characters, I guess, Mr. Gray in the in the book and also in the movie, um, he's portrayed as being sexist and dominant. And that exists both in a BDSM context and outside of the BDSM context. Whereas in actual BDSM, when you're having that pre-negotiation where you're deciding what yes is and what no is, you know, there there is no sexism. There is no dominance. It's totally egalitarian, as Vero said. Um, so. Uh, she also, the um, co-author of the study, also mentions that some people have criticized um, yes means yes or essentially affirmative consent uh, because it makes sex less exciting or less sexy because rather than it being spontaneous or, you know, the the idea of no means no is that you keep going until you're told no. And for some people, they're like, oh, that's really exciting. You never know or yeah, well, whatever. Um, the idea of having to pre-negotiate and to have pre-consent um, does not make sex necessarily less sexy or less desirable. Uh, she does say that, um, you know, the idea is that you can negotiate what you do and it won't lessen sexual desire. You know, that's a good message. And that's a message that the BDSM community is delivering. Because if, and let's be honest, if 
you know, having affirmative consent made sex any less fun or exciting, then maybe the BDSM community wouldn't be as large or engaged as it is. One thing I will say about mm-hmm. that too, and, and that idea that uh, negotiation makes sex, uh, sex less exciting or sexy, uh, negotiation and you know, pl- planning a scene doesn't mean that you necessarily are writing a script for every little thing that's going to happen. Like, oh, at five minutes and 32 seconds, I'll put my hand on your inner thigh. And then at five minutes and 38 seconds, I'll, you know, gr- you know, gr- uh, gracefully <laughs> caress your balls, right? Like that's not exactly the kind of negotiation we're talking about. Right. It's more, you know, part of negotiation could just be establishing limits. It might be, you know, you know, we can do whatever you want, uh, except for I don't want to do this, this, and this, right? So you can still have that feeling of, you know, progressing and kind of not knowing when things are going to happen and, you know, kind of reaching over and, you know, not being quite so sure what's going to happen. You can still have that experience. But you can have it within the context of negotiation where the idea is, okay, we're going to do a non-con scene or we're going to do this kind of scene. And you can basically be role-playing that. And you can still, I think people really just don't understand the idea that you can role-play something and right. have just as much joy from it as the actual thing. Because you don't actually want to be raping anyone. But if you really find that sexy, find someone who's into non-con and have a scene like that with that person. And you can still enjoy that activity. And it's totally fine. Yeah. I mean... This whole idea that affirmative, enthusiastic consent is boring. I mean, again, like kind of what you were just saying, you can definitely role play out what you're going to do. We're not we're not doing stage blocking. There's no, you know, director that's in the background going, no, you're doing that wrong. You need to cross the stage right now. Like there, there's no stage blocking when it comes to deciding which sexual activities are on or off the table. Um Again, role-playing what you're going to do even before you get to that is kind of fun. You know, well, I was thinking maybe we could do this and then maybe we could try this. And I mean, sex itself, even if you pre-plan what is what is on the table and what is acceptable, I mean, it's never going to go exactly to plan. I mean, part of sex is enjoying these stupid mistakes that happen. You know, you're repositioning and one of you falls off the bed and it's a good time and everybody laughs. You know, sex is meant to be fun. And if you go into it with this stoic, you know, attitude, of course, it's going to be a little bit boring. So you don't need to bring stoicism into the bed. You should bring an open mind and an egalitarian mindset when it comes to negotiating and to affirmative consent. And you should recognize that. You know, when your partner says, well, I don't really want to do that, you should just let it be. There shouldn't be any kind of, oh, come on, it'll be fun. Come on. No, 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 no. No. Well, the other thing is negotiation doesn't have to be quite as staid as, you know, negotiating a legal contract or, you know, selling (laughs) cattle, right? Like, we're not talking about, like, do you consent to the following list of items? Like, that's not sexy. Do you want to engage in intercourse? (laughs) (laughs) That, That isn't sexy, but... Hey, I bet you. I bet you'd like it if I did X. Oh, I bet you'd love it if we did this tonight. You know, and then you can get affirmative consent in a sexy way. You can basically, you know, say, "I, I bet you would love it if I did X." And then they say, "Yes, great." Now you, you know that's on, that activity is on the table. If they say no, then you just pivot to, to proposing something else. Like that's it's really it, it doesn't have to be quite that formal. It can still feel fun. It can feel like normal flirting. But what you're still seeking consent as you're going through that conversation. And that's really important. You know, if I'm planning to hook up with someone or if I'm, okay, I don't really do, but if I'm planning to have sex with, with a friend or something like that, and I say, hey, it would be really fun if when you came over, I tied you up and then, you know, you know, crest you in this way. And then maybe we did some, you know, vision impairment or something like that. And like, if they think, if, if they are really turned on by that and they're saying, oh yes, please, then I know that that's on the table for that night. But I'm not asking them, hey, how do you feel about the concept of me eventually doing this with you? It, does, it doesn't have to be quite that abstract. You can make it more fun and more immediate. It can be part of 
flirting essentially, but you're still seeking consent and knowing what is and is not on the table. Sometimes, no. when I, sometimes when I suggest something like that, I'll hear, oh, that sounds like fun, but I'd really you know, rather keep sex off the table for right now or something like that. And then you just say, oh, that sounds great. We'll watch a movie. Like, it doesn't have to be a big deal. But what you shouldn't be doing is try, trying to coerce someone who doesn't have an arrangement with you or coercion is acceptable. And you shouldn't be trying to just go for things because, again, that might feel fun and exciting, but it also puts you at a huge risk of um, violating someone's consent, making someone feel uncomfortable uh, making someone have regret sex or making someone feel as if they've been raped and you never want to be in that position. Right. Right. So, I mean, unless maybe you have some kind of a fetish or some kind of an interest in really formal settings, maybe business suits, maybe, maybe don't wear business suits while you're negotiating your sex play, you know, for, for the evening. I mean, again, if that's something you're into and you're just like, man, I'm just going to go for it right after this and it's going to be hot and we're going to wear clothes and it's going to be suit sex and it's going to be great. You know, Try to make it fun. It doesn't, again, have to be super formal. There's no notary that you need to bring in that's going to sign off. Um, you know, the, the the idea is that when you have, you know, any kind of affirmative consent that, you know, the joke is, is that, well, paperwork has to be signed and there has to be, you know, notary and everybody has to completely be in agreement and every single little thing that you're going to do has to be pre-accepted and signed. I mean, yeah, it's a funny joke and everything, but this is kind of a serious issue. You know, the the culture up until now has been no means no to where everything is on the table until one partner says no. And then coercion is possibly going to be acceptable from that point. You know, we, we need to shift into the mindset that affirmative consent is where we need to go and to get affirmative enthusiastic consent uh, before we really embark into, we'll say, sexual waters. Um, so... I thought this was an interesting article. The research is pretty fascinating as well. Um, the author does mention, of course, that there is a lot of um, correlation and that it is not completely outside of the realm of reality, that there are other factors other than the you know BDSM that are in play when it comes to the fact that the BDSM community tends to be a little bit less accepting of um, we'll say uh, victim blaming and more accepting of affirmative consent, but she does say that it's a good indication of how you know mindset is changing and that everybody could learn a few lessons from the BDSM community. So to everybody who called us abusive monsters, you're welcome. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but um, I thought it was an interesting article, and I wanted to you know kind of open the show with this. Um, especially because this week we're doing an all-question episode. Yeah, I will say that if you want me to be an abusive monster, you can ask for that, and we can negotiate that in advance, and then we can have a really fun <laughs> night. But by default, yeah. we are not actually abusive monsters. That has to be negotiated and requested. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so this week we're doing an all-question episode. Um, as, as we mentioned last week, we do have a serious backlog of questions, and because the format of our show up until this point has been, we'll take a topic, we'll dissect the topic, and then we'll do a question or two. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had time to get through a lot of the questions that we've had, so we decided that for this week, we're just going to answer questions. 
Yeah, we're, we're gonna, probably going to do this periodically. So we're calling this All Questions Volume 1 because anytime we develop a, a large enough backlog of questions to justify a full question show, we can just kind of pepper those in here and there. So we're going to continue doing a topic-based format for the show overall, but you should expect to see these All Questions shows pop up every once in a while. Yeah, and I'm actually really excited for this because we have a lot of really good questions in here. I mean, that for, you know, in my opinion, these do require having their own episode because the questions are very in-depth and I don't know if we could do justice with them having just a, you know, end of the show segment. We wanted to be able to to make sure that we fully delve into these uh, issues. So the first question, um, and we've um, just gone ahead and we've anonymized all of these um, simply because um, we didn't have really any permission to use personal details with them. So if you hear your question read and you want to give us feedback, um, just send us an email um, or get into touch with us the way that you sent us the question. Yeah, those of us, those of you who did email the questions, I'm going to email you out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, telling you that the show's here to listen to. So hi, everybody. Yeah. But um, yeah, everyone else, feel free to comment as well if you feel like this. I actually want to address that because that's something that's come up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I've had people ask me, is it okay if I comment on a question that wasn't mine that's similar to a situation that I had? And the answer to that is, of course, because the whole point of the show is not just to answer one person's question. If we wanted to do that, we would email them back privately. So the idea is that when one person asks a question, it's probably very similar to a lot of people's situation. And so we definitely want feedback from people who have similar situations and maybe not exactly the same uh, scenario, but close enough that it, it resonates for you or you found the answer helpful or you were in a similar situation and found a different solution that actually worked better. We'd love to hear those sorts of things. We'd love that kind of feedback. And then we can pass that along as well to the person who asked the question. And basically our audience is able to help each other in that situation. So by all means, feel free to reply to questions, uh, to answers that aren't, aren't from your question, because we love that level of interaction from our audience. Yeah, of course. So, you know, kicking this off with the first question, um, how do you, in essence, move forward after a bad breakup? In this case, involving an abusive relationship. How do you get out of that feeling that it is just going to happen again with whoever is next? So... I've been in a highly abusive relationship. I've spoken about it on the show. Um, it was emotionally abusive, physically abusive, and it was, you know, kind of a living nightmare for a while. And it took a long time for me after the fact to stop blaming myself for a lot of the things that happened for blaming myself that, well, I got myself into the situation. You know, it wasn't entirely his fault. And it took me, you know, a long time as well after that to, really be okay with the idea of dating again. Getting over a bad breakup, and especially one that involves an abusive, you know, context, whether it's emotional, physical, you know, verbal, any kind of abuse within a relationship, you have to do a lot of healing internally. You have to be at peace with yourself as you are, because you do somewhat have to rebuild yourself up after that, because part of an abusive relationship is that it breaks you down in order to make you into a more controlled individual. So I would focus, you know, once you are out of that, you have to take time for yourself to, to just remind yourself of who you are and to remind yourself of your own self-worth. And then even more importantly, to remind yourself that not everybody is like that. And that can, that last part can take a little bit of a longer time to kind of get you know, yourself into a habit of doing because it's very difficult and it's to, to get over the idea that, well, everybody, you know, 
I was abused once, I can be abused again. And since I fell in love with somebody that was an abusive jerk, then it's quite possible for me to do it again. And you know, he didn't appear to be abusive when we, or she appeared to be abusive when we got into a relationship. And now, you know, three, four months into the fact, they're abusive. I get out of the relationship and la di da. Everybody can be abusive. It's it's very easy to get into that mindset, and it's very difficult to break out of it. You're going to want to start slow, and you're going to want to take things easy. Get to know people. Maybe don't, if you have a habit of rushing into relationships, maybe take your time with them. Maybe go on a few dates before you try to make things formal, or even more dates. You know, Maybe consider not having sex on the first dates. That, for a lot of people, can be a little bit of an issue when it comes to getting over abusive uh, relationships in the past, because for some individuals, the act of having sex is what kind of solidifies. It is the, the, you know, bonding solution that creates a relationship. And for some people that can make it incredibly difficult to not rush into a relationship. I recommend taking your time to get to know the other party that you're interested in dating Go on dates that are quiet where you can talk more and avoid going on dates that are more participant, uh, like going to the movies or going to see a concert or anything like that. You know, take time to get to know each other in an intimate way that doesn't involve sex. And once you're able to do that, and once you're able to begin trusting them, you know, then I think that you'll begin to move past everything. And it's it's okay to open up about your previous relationship. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it on the first date, but I would recommend kind of opening up about it with your partner and just saying, you know, or potential partner and saying, you know, one of my previous relationships was incredibly abusive. And so, you know, if you're looking for something that's going to move a little bit faster, then unfortunately, that's not going to be the case with me. Unfortunately, you know, I need to take time in order to get to know you. And if that's not something that you can really handle, then you need to go elsewhere. And if they respect that and they take their time, then that's great. Some people won't, and that's fine too, because you're just looking for two different things. Take your time to get to know your potential partner. Take your time to trust yourself. Take your time, take your time to trust them. And ultimately, you'll find that with that time of actually doing things, not just kind of sitting there and sulking or remembering the past, by being active in controlled change, you're going to find that you are able to move past that previous relationship. And soon it will just be a distant memory. And that's really, you know, all that you can do. It's, it's, I wouldn't recommend exposure therapy for, for this sort of thing where you're like, well, my last relationship was abusive and it really kind of traumatized me. So I'm going to get into another abusive relationship because this time I can take it. No, don't do that. Um, That's not the best idea. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Vero, do you have any kind of, you know, input on this? Well, no, I think you, your answer was pretty much spot on. And I, I kind of wanted to let you take point on this just because I know you've been in that situation, a very similar situation before. Uh, one thing I would reemphasize too is not only is it good for you in, in the sense of you know being able to take time uh, to make sure someone isn't abusive, but also by delaying when sexual activities come into a relationship, a lot of abusers are looking for a quick fix in terms of sex, of get, in terms of entrapping you and that sort of thing. So when you make someone go through a courtship period, 
Uh, it doesn't eliminate all people who might be abusive, but it does eliminate a lot of the people who would be uh, abusive in the short term. And so uh, while it is totally fine to sleep with someone on the first date, if that's something you're up for and you want to take your chances on that and that's something that excites you and it sounds fun and, you know, you, maybe you think this person's, you know, a good person or whatever, that's fine. But for your situation, I feel like taking that chance probably, at least in the short term, isn't such a good idea because, again, you do have that recent experience where things did go uh, not the way you, you hoped they would. So taking a longer courtship period before becoming super intimate with someone should help you become more trusting and more uh, comfortable. And uh, that should then ho- hopefully help you uh, that allow that intimacy to develop more naturally without you feeling like it's forced before you're ready, which might happen if you tried getting intimate immediately after coming out of an abusive relationship. So uh, and I think Metrico's suggestions of how to communicate that to a partner were also spot on. You know, make it don't make it sound again like a disease. You know, you can be very honest and open without making it sound like you're, you're damaged goods. You know, just communicate the idea that you know you don't uh, you're not going to be someone who's able to have intimacy right away, but you really look forward to a long courtship period and getting to know this person. Put a positive spin on it. Talk about how much you look forward to the courtship. How much you look forward to getting to know them. How much you look forward on a you know more extended dating uh, sort of uh, track, and you know for the right person who has more of a romantic mindset, that could actually sound really fun and exciting for that person. So again, you don't have to roll it out like it's a disease. You can roll it out like it's a positive thing, like it's an opportunity. And for the right person, it will be an opportunity, and you'll be the right opportunity for them. And hopefully, you have really good luck with dating in the future. I mean, probably the best advice. If I could go back and give myself this advice, I would. You're not a broken individual. You don't have ridiculous amounts of baggage. You're not a terrible person. You got into a situation that unfortunately was out of your your control, and then you regained control. You're stronger than you think you are, and you're going to be okay. It sucks for the time being, especially as you heal from that experience, but you're not undateable, you're not unlovable, and you are worth of love. You're worth it. You are a great person. You just have to remind yourself of that every now and then. And if your partner is rushing you, or your potential partner, I should say, is rushing you to do things you're not comfortable with, or not taking the time to get to know you. For example, my first date, quote unquote, after getting out of an abusive relationship consisted of me going over to the guy's house where he just wanted to watch television and not really talk or anything that went nowhere. And he messaged me a few times after and he was really upset. You know, man, I thought we were going to, you know, smoke and then like have sex. I'm like, I told you that was not going to happen. And yet here you are trying to do that. And you're mad that I left, you know, you assume agency, resume agency in yourself and allow for yourself to, you know, be in control. Even if you tend to be a little bit more submissive, it's okay to exert your agency and it's okay to to have limits and to hold other people to limits. And if people and that are, gets back that actually gets back to the top of the show idea. The idea that yeah. even if you're a submissive person, submission doesn't happen until after it's negotiated, right? Right. So you need to maintain your egalitarian status and your agency until you develop enough comfort with a potential dom or a potential partner to then give them that submission. But submission is a gift that you only give someone when you can trust them. And for you, trust has been damaged, and yeah. you need a while to rebuild trust with any new partner that you might have. And you can communicate that and say, hey, my trust is at a pretty low level right now. I really need to take time to build trust with you, and then we can discuss those kinds of things. And that's totally fine. 
And any dom worth his salt who isn't just a jackass wanting to get off is going to see, see that as totally acceptable. Uh, dom doesn't mean uh, asshole who needs to fuck everything that moves. <laughs> dom should mean someone who's ethical and respectful of you and wants to bring you pleasure through submission. Right. And the focus should be on you and bringing you pleasure. It should not be on the dom taking pleasure from you. Even though that's hot to think about for a lot of subs, at the end of the day, you're giving each other pleasure. And it should be mostly about that, not about taking. And make sure you're with someone who's a giver of pleasure and not a taker. And if you can do that and take your time, you should have really good luck in the dating scene. Right. And one thing that I would recommend and one thing that I would caution against is make sure that you're communicating all of this in a way that's not in any way blamey. Um, some people have a tendency to, for example, when they say, well, my trust is at an all-time low, you should take the time to explain that it's not due to anything that the individual you're courting or, you know, individual that, you know, you're getting kind of, you know, involved with, maybe you've started dating, you need to make sure that they understand that it's not anything that they've done. There is a level of reassurance that you have to do, especially with longer courtships where you are coming from a previously abusive relationship, where you have to reaffirm that it's not anything that you've done. And it's not that I don't trust you. It's just, you know, for my own sake, you know, use I statements, make sure that you're communicating in a way that is healthy and open and understanding. Because if you just say, well, I have trust issues, then a lot of people are just gonna be like, uh, that's a red flag. So you want to make sure that you're communicating your, your thoughts and your emotional state and well-being in a way that's understandable and in a way that is not in any way, shape or form finger pointing or putting the blame on, you know, your new partner for the mistakes of your old partner. Um, again, that, that can be a little bit difficult. So you might, you know, if, if you're unsure about how to use ice statements, we do have an episode on that, but just in general, make sure that you're talking about yourself and your own mental state when you're having discussions about, you know, the future of the relationship when it comes to, you know, trust issues or maybe even sexual trust issues. Um, employ affirmative consent as well. Employ if enthusiastic affirmative consent in this relationship. And if your partner is not willing to go that route, then you might need to find a new partner. Um, so, I mean, again, like the, the only thing that I can recommend is that you are worth having a good relationship because, you know, everybody is worth that. And any partner, dom, sub, that you're going to get into a relationship with that doesn't recognize that they're not worth being in a relationship with. So again, thank you for the question and good luck, you know, just be patient and take your time. Um, we have another question. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave off on this one. Yes, it's more, more my wheelhouse, I guess. So this one is basically about a, the topic of someone who thinks the polyamorous relationship might be toxic. And we uh, actually had a column a few weeks ago about whether uh, how to maybe tell if your polyamorous relationship might be toxic. And this question was kind of in response to that column. So it goes, so lately my boyfriend, his mate, and I have been having a lot of issues. My boyfriend's mate recently stated that he didn't really feel happy with my boyfriend and I playing with each other. And said that due to past issues he had when I was with them last... Uh, and then just an aside, my boyfriend and I have a long-distance relationship on top of all of this. He wasn't exactly as comfortable with the relationship anymore. He got extremely jealous of the time that my boyfriend and I were spending together, even though they see each other and talk all the time, admittedly more than my boyfriend and I do to begin with. They fought almost nonstop when I was there, 
and when they weren't fighting, they were all over each other and ignoring me. It was only until my boyfriend and I were alone that I shared how this upset me, and even then it continued. The past month or so, this has been an issue that's been ongoing. Fights happen even more frequently between the two of them because of it, and as much as my boyfriend says that things are better, I still have yet to see how things are changing at, at all. We're still at a standstill, and I haven't even talked to his mates since this all happened. Neither of them have actually talked to me about all of this, and I don't know how to feel. My boyfriend wants me to feel included, but when he and his mate don't let me participate in conversations regarding our relationship as a whole, or when I'm not regarded as mate status to my boyfriend, I'm left feeling lost. I love my boyfriend so much, I don't want to be without him, but I don't know how much more of this I can take. We were honestly okay until jealousy reared its ugly head and bared its fangs. Any sort of feedback or advice would be amazing. Thank you so much. Okay, so we talk about this all the time, anytime you're dealing with a polyamorous relationship. For a polyamorous relationship to meet my definition of being truly polyamorous, it needs to occur with the full enthusiastic consent of all parties involved. So honestly, to me, this relationship isn't quite looking so much as polyamorous as it is looking like kind of a shaky, unstable um, sort of situation. Because it doesn't seem like the, the consent is all that enthusiastic on the part of your boyfriend's mate or essentially on your, your metamorphs side. And there's some issues here, too, that are making me concerned that, uh, indeed, your polyamorous relationship might be toxic. Number one being the really poor communication that seems to be happening. There's poor communication between your boyfriend and uh, the mate there. And there's also very poor communication between the two of them and you. Uh, you mentioned that the, you know, you're not really speaking to your metamorph very much, that your mate isn't really communicating the status between him and his partner to you so frequently, uh, and it's not looking so good. So one thing, you know, if you were going to try to salvage this relationship, a lot of things would need to change and would need to change pretty soon. Uh, first off, you would need to be, have a seat at the table as part of this relationship dynamic, and you'd need to have a three-way chat where you and your, your boyfriend and your boyfriend's mate are all able to speak and to uh, talk about your needs and how your needs can be met while meeting each other's needs. There would need to be a lot of nonviolent communication where you accept and can hear the needs of other people without becoming defensive or aggressive towards them and uh, basically becoming jealous or possessive as well. And you'd need to be able to hear each other's needs and then find a way to uh, try to meet them in a way that everyone feels their needs are getting met without there being a lot of uh, recriminations or a lot of pain, a lot of jealousy. It doesn't so much sound to me like your boyfriend's mate wants to be in a polyamorous relationship at all. It doesn't sound like there's anything in this relationship for your boyfriend's mate. Uh, and it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of compersion going on where your boyfriend's mate is feeling happy for him. So your boyfriend and his mate would really need to work on their own relationship and figure out what's going wrong there where the mate is feeling neglected or is feeling jealous or is feeling like this is you know something that's robbing him of something. All of those feelings would need to be addressed, and that's frankly on your boyfriend to work out in his relationship. I wouldn't really recommend proceeding with this connection if it's going to stay this dramatic and unstable, and there's going to be so many jealous outbursts on, on the behalf of your uh, boyfriend's mate, because you're really not welcome in that relationship in that situation, and it's not very fun for you or very emotionally healthy for you to be in a relationship where you don't feel welcome. So frankly, I would be giving your boyfriend something close to an ultimatum if not quite that strong saying you know I really don't feel comfortable proceeding this relationship unless the communication between all three of us 
improves. I really would like to, to not feel like I'm your boyfriend's enemy or your mate's enemy. I want to feel like, you know, we're all here because we love you and we all want to support you and be there for you. But I need to feel like I can be a full participant in that relationship without feeling like a second class citizen who doesn't have any negotiating power, who doesn't feel like I'm essentially just a piece on the side who's not welcome in the relationship. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. But you do need to assert yourself and communicate that you need to feel, as you said, you want to feel like a mate. You don't want to feel like a, a boyfriend or some unofficial thing on the side. So, um, you know, definitely if the communication doesn't improve, I don't think that is a healthy relationship. And I do think you might be better off leaving that situation because without better communication, uh, jealousy is only going to keep getting worse. There's only going to be more fighting and uh, you're not really going to be able to enjoy your time, even when you're, you're enjoying, you know, when you're seeing a long-distance partner, you want that time to be quality time because you don't get very much of it. And so if your you know, boyfriend is going to be fighting with your mate every time that, that you're, you're visiting, that's not really going to be a good relationship for you. You're going to feel like you're wasting your time, wasting your money. Um, it's not going to be good for you. It doesn't sound like it's meeting, the current relationship is meeting anyone's needs very well. And a relationship that isn't meeting anyone's needs is not a relationship that's worth continuing. And that means that you need to end it. However, I do think it's possible to save it so long as you have a very frank conversation with your boyfriend about what your needs are and your boyfriend then convinces his mate to join you at the table for negotiation and figuring out what is uh, a relationship that could work for all three of you. If that's not something that your uh, boyfriend's mate is willing to do, then it doesn't sound like the consent on his behalf is all that enthusiastic and I would recommend that you look elsewhere for a romantic connection because... This doesn't sound like one that's going to be very satisfying for you. Yeah. I mean, I have to echo the idea that the communication sounds, um, for lack of a better word, a little bit abysmal. Um, when you mentioned that your boyfriend and his mate don't allow you to participate in conversations regarding, you know, the relationship as a whole, um, that's that's incredibly problematic. Um, There's a lot of couples privilege going on here. It sounds like yeah. that's something I, I forgot to mention. So it sounds like they have a very very much primary relationship, and it sounds like what you're looking for is something close to a co-primary relationship, where you feel like you should have an equal seat at the table, uh, and if not, maybe even a co-primary relationship, at least one where you feel welcome. And it doesn't sound like your boyfriend's mate feels that way at all. Your boyfriend's mate sees you as a threat. Your boyfriend's mate sees you as something to be minimized, something to be kind of kept out, to be shut out, something that you can be negotiated about. And the problem is when you are in that situation, um, that basically means that your boyfriend's mate feels like you're disposable. Like you're something that, your boy, you're, you're, that you, know, you could be tossed away at any point. You don't really have any agency in the relationship. All of those things are kind of dangerous, frankly. So at least for your emotional well-being, because you don't want to be in a, in a relationship that's that contingent that could be ended at any point because, you know, your boyfriend's mate can't take anymore. You want to have security in your relationships usually, especially if they're somewhat committed romantic relationships. And it doesn't sound like you have very much security in this relationship at all. And that worries me for on your behalf because you're not being given that agency. And that's so that, that level of couple's privilege is really dangerous and in my opinion, is really bad polyamory. Even if you do have a hierarchical polyamorous relationship, we have a primary couple. For example, my relationship with Koji is uh, a very much a primary relationship. We live together, we're married. Uh, but when I have other partners, even if they aren't co-primary partners, they might be secondary partners, uh, they still have a negotiate, negotiation seat at the table. 
And if I need to have a three-way conversation with them and Koji, that happens with the three of us. I certainly would never think about excluding a partner from talking to Koji or from not being filled in on, on a conversation that Koji and I have had about the relationship. If I end up discussing another mate with Koji, and that, really, that conversation doesn't involve that person, maybe because they're long distance and we have the conversation in person, I then immediately fill them in on the content of that conversation and welcome them to follow up with Koji if anything is unclear, because I don't want them to just get my side. I welcome them to also get Koji's side and to make sure everyone is on the same page. And that's, I think that really is the level that communication should be at, to know that consent really is enthusiastic, to know that everyone is on the same page, and then to not put your boyfriend in the position of playing a game of telephone where he's communicating to you the needs of his mate and everything is getting lost in translation at that point. You're not actually engaging with the person who's having the issues in the relationship. And without being able to engage with that person, you can't really resolve anything. So you're in this limbo of constant conflict where you can't actually resolve any of the conflict because you're not even really allowed to engage or speak with the person who's having the issues to begin with. And that's just not a healthy or stable relationship for you. And there's no security in that relationship for you. And yes, that all of those things do point to the relationship being extremely toxic unless changes happen and changes happen really soon. They're not really big changes. It just has to involve all of you communicating with each other and being willing to engage with each other. And, you know, frankly, if your mate's, uh, if your boyfriend's mate isn't willing to do that with you, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the relationship being toxic because that communication isn't going to happen that means that you can't really be happy or secure in that relationship. Right. Every relationship, you know, you, you deserve in every relationship to have the ability to state your mind, to state your opinion, and to have a seat at the table. And if that's not happening in this relationship, and if it continues to not happen, even though you assert your agency and say, listen, I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable for me to be a part of this relationship, then I need to have a say. I need to have you know, some voice in this. This isn't work where you guys are my supervisor and you get to tell me what happens. I mean, even if you're in any kind of a power exchange dynamic, that has to be pre-negotiated. That has to be pre-understood. And if you have never signed off on that, then again, that points to the relationship being toxic where, well, no, you'll just do what I say because that's, you know, just how this relationship is. That's not how any relationship is that hasn't been agreed upon. So, if you're getting the runaround, if you're getting the whole, well, you know, I'm just not really comfortable with you being part of the relationship, then that's great. But that's a discussion that everybody needs to have. That can't just come from your your metamor in this. That has to come from your boyfriend as well. You need to be part of that discussion. If they're having discussions without you concerning the relationship, then, I mean, in my mind, it points to them not considering you as part of the relationship. And you deserve to have a voice in every relationship. And if it's not happening in this one and it continues to not happen in this one, then maybe you should find a new relationship. You know, again, you don't have to get along with your metamor. You don't have to fuck your metamor, but you should at least be on good enough terms with your metamor to where you can have discussions about the relationship without it turning, you know, aggressive or, you know, angry or to have outbursts. And, you know, the, the, you know, reading through your question, it just seems like your relationship is incredibly toxic. You know, make the changes or, or propose the changes that Bureau has suggested. And if they are just saying, well, no, that, no, we're not really interested in that, then what that ultimately boils down to is that they're not interested in your input into the relationship. And that both counts for your input vocally and also your input 
you know, in terms of actions or being there. So, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that this is happening because it's, you know, it sounds like the relationship that you want to have is not the relationship that your metamor is wanting to have. So definitely try to communicate, definitely try to have that conversation, but also prepare yourself for the idea that this might be a relationship that just is not going to be saved, at least for you. Right. One thing I will tell you, if you do go the route, and I mentioned this briefly before, but I just want to reiterate this because it's really important. When you do go the route of having that conversation, it's extremely important that you keep the focus on how to make the relationship good in the future and not get bogged down in recriminations about what's happened in the past. Because I noticed in your question, there's a lot of discussion about fighting that's happened, about things being unpleasant, um, you know, a lot of negativity that's gone on in the past. You don't want to start that conversation out by pointing fingers at your metamor and saying you create all this conflict or you guys are always fighting. Because um, when you, you're going to, that's going to put them on the defensive and it's going to prevent you from actually addressing any of the issues that you're having. So you want to make sure you're approaching the conversation in an extremely empathetic way where you're not um, making accusations and you're not focusing on things that have gone wrong, wrong in the past, but the focus is on how can we all relate to each other in a happy and healthy way going forward into the future. Start out with asking your metamor before even expressing what it is that you're looking for. Ask your metamor, what are your needs? What is it that you need to feel safe and happy and healthy in this relationship? Listen, don't talk, just listen. Make sure that you're understanding that person's needs. And then when they're done explaining to you, repeat it back to them. Say, okay, I'm understanding that you need this and this and this. That's wonderful. Now, let's talk about how I can meet all of those needs and make sure that your, your mate is meeting all of those needs while also getting my needs met in this relationship. And then you can talk about your needs and talk about what you hope to achieve in the relationship. If everything goes well from that point, and that's the best, that is the way to do it if you want to have the best possible chance of things going well, um, then, you know, that can kind of get putting on the right, the right footing. Um, and that gives you a chance for everything to go correctly. There's also a chance, though, that your metamor is going to express needs that can't be met if you're in the relationship. And if you realize that your metamor's needs can't be met if you're there, that, again, is going to point to the fact that this relationship is unstable and broken for a reason. And it's because you really are looking for something that your boyfriend can't offer which is a more committed relationship or a more intimate relationship than is really permissible under the relationship terms that your boyfriend and his mate have. And if that's the case, one of two things needs to happen. You need to adjust your expectations and treat your boyfriend like a more secondary partner who is less committed to you and who might and treat that relationship a bit more like it's contingent, meaning that it could end somewhat suddenly. So you want to very much reduce your investment in that relationship, but maybe just enjoy it while it lasts. And that's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, maybe even start looking for a primary relationship of your own while still enjoying your boyfriend's company. So kind of keeping one foot in the door, that's acceptable to do in that situation. Another thing you might just want to do at that point was, okay, we can't meet each other's needs here. I'm going to have to leave in that case. And that, that would be the point where you would break up. But you would do that in an amicable way. It doesn't have to be a, f a huge you know, fight where everyone is yelling at each other that leads to the breakup. It can be part of a really honest, frank negotiation that's happening in a nonviolent way driven by empathy. And that is the way that I recommend you have that conversation. Try to keep all of the stress and fighting that's happened in the past out of the conversation and really just focus on being constructive and trying to achieve and meet everyone's needs going forward. That is the way to do this if there's any chance of saving it whatsoever.
Now, you might, in the course of having this conversation, your metamor might try to talk about, well, in the past, we've had this issue. Even if you go with a future-facing approach, your metamor might bring up past issues. And, you know, it, it's it's you want to make sure that you handle that in, in a more gracious way where, I mean, I would recommend if, you know, your metamor says, well, in the past, when we tried to have these discussions, you know, we made our demands and we made our expectations. And you said that that's not something that's reasonable for you or feasible for you. You know, how do you expect this to change in the future when you've, you know, just been having issues with the way that we want things to be? It's, what, what I would recommend is that if anybody else were to bring up past issues or to bo- get bogged down in the minutia of he said, she said from past issues, then just just kind of talk about, yes, you know, there have been a lot of issues that have happened in the past. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a lack of communication. There's, you know, issues in our communication methods. And so going forward, what I would like to do to make this a stronger, more sustainable relationship for everybody is to, you know, have open conversations where all of us are able to discuss, you know, at once with each other to where there's no you guys talking and then relaying information to me or me and my mate talking and then we relay information to you. We should all be able to discuss issues pertaining to the relationship together in order to make sure that everybody is on the same page. One other thing I'll recommend too, if other stuff from the past does need to come up, uh, don't get into the nitty-gritty of explaining every little detail that happened in an argument because that basically makes you relive the pain of that argument. You'll just feel all that tension and stress from that argument by basically reliving it live while having this conversation. That's really not helpful. It's going to actually prevent you from moving forward. It's going to keep you mired in the past. So anytime that you do need to summarize any kind of past event, try to keep your summary to about five words or less. So you're referencing what happened, but you're not actually reliving it and going through it again. You know When you... Uh, and your mate uh, spent a lot of time together when I was visiting would be a reasonable way of summarizing versus when you and your mate did this and this and this and you went here and you did this thing and you went out to that party and I was left at home and I was sad. You know, you don't want to get into all those details, right? You just want to keep it to a very short, succinct kind of referential description that doesn't cause everyone to relive all of that pain and stress. Because as you do that, again, that's going to put everyone on the defensive and it's going to prevent you from actually engaging each other in an empathetic way where you're all trying to get your needs met. So try to, again, keep the focus in the present and in the future and to keep all references to the past as brief as possible so that you can really try to move forward. So speaking of moving forward, we have another question. Um, The question, the subject is, I don't feel like I fit in with the fandom or know how to relate to my fellow furries. Um, I have no friends who are furries or scalies that have similar hobbies and intellect as I do. Only friends I have are ones who hate furries. I view myself as a dragon and I'm interested in math, chemistry, general physics, general engineering, electronics, nuclear physics, metallurgy, and construction. However, attraction to other furries or scalies with similar interests is currently getting in the way of my interests. I am being tugged between my hobbies and attraction. I cannot attend local events involving furries because I do not want people to figure out what I am, and I am always told stranger danger no matter what. Some of the events are distant, and college gets in the way. I am always told to be myself, but I really can't with the influence of my family, my two fur-hating friends, and hobbies. I also cannot tell if I am even bisexual or asexual. I think about relationships, but if I think about them too hard or get into a relationship, I suddenly feel despair, confusion, and lightheaded. I feel as if I'm an enigma. 
Since I feel bisexual but prefer being asexual, I guess I'm demisexual. I'm also socially inept and social or socially awkward, living with a mental disorder, and I'm also a nerd living in my parents' basement. Complicated, confusing, and awkward enough for you? I am also agnostic, living in a devoted Christian family, and I do not want them to figure out that I have this very unusual interest in anthropomorphic animals rather than humans for obvious reasons involving discrimination and being forced into a religion that does not help me out at all. Church just gives me more stuff to show how miserable and crappy my life really is. I seriously need help and advice for all the relationship problems I have. I I honestly don't know who I am because of all of this. So... There's there's a lot going on here. Um, so first, you know, the, the issue and something that I want to emphasize is that it's not up to other people to define who you are. You get to define who you are as an individual. You define what your interests are, what your passions are, what you identify as. It's not up to somebody else to say you're this. Everybody has that level of agency and self-determination to, you know, be able to assert, well, you know, my name is Metrico, I'm a red panda, my interests are podcasting and butts. Like, nobody else gets to make that decision for me. So, part of this, I think, is coming from a place where you're not necessarily sure how to talk to yourself, how to listen to yourself, and how to really be comfortable enough to ask yourself these questions. You know, who are you? A lot of people, when they ask that, they, they think about themselves in terms of profession or interests or, you know, um, hobbies that they undertake. Well, I'm a tinkerer. That, that, that's what you do. Who are you? You know, who are you at your core? When you go to sleep, who are you? It's okay to not know who you are. It's okay to not feel like you fit in. It's okay to be a little bit confused about things. Life is just a constant state of confusion, if we're being perfectly honest. And that continues from birth, you know, until death. If you're feeling uncertain about, you know, who you are and things like that, you should really take the time to get to know yourself a little bit better. You list all of these hobbies that you're interested in. You list all of these interests that you have. You list things about your family. You list all of these we'll say circumstantial things, but there's really no information about who you are at your core. And I feel that that's something that you need to work on. If you're, if you're being surrounded by people that have, you know, opinions or beliefs that are contrary to yours, you recognize that they do. And that's great, but you need to be able to kind of assert yourself a little bit in those kinds of situations. You mentioned that you're living at home with a religious family and you're agnostic and that could be a, an issue. In that case, you know, keeping the status quo the way that you are, where you're not being forced into a religion, you're not being forced to go to church, it sounds like, that's fine. But maybe being a little bit more comfortable with finding friends that are local, part of the issue, it sounds like, is that you're going to these events that are far, far away because you're afraid about anybody within your personal life finding out these pieces of information about you. You know, I have a lot of questions about your your particular question. Um, what's your age? Um, you know, what 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 path do you have for yourself in life? Um, are you in college? Do you are you a working professional? Are you in between jobs? There are a lot of questions that I have about this question because it sounds like you're a little bit scattered. You have all of these interests, you know, 
chemistry, physics, nuclear physics, metallurgy, construction, engineering, electronics. It's great to have a lot of interest, but it sounds like you need a little bit more focus. And that's really what my talking to yourself point comes down to. You need to focus your life a little bit more. You're a little bit too focused on what everybody else is doing. Well, my friends think this. Well, my parents do this. Well, when I go to these events, they say this. A lot of it, your question comes down to what other people are saying and doing and less about what you're thinking and what you're doing and what actions you're undergoing for your future. So that in itself can be attributed perhaps to your social awkwardness that you mentioned. Maybe it could be attributed to your um, mental disorder that you mentioned. But it sounds like you just need to take time to get to know yourself a little bit better, to be a little bit more comfortable with yourself, and to allow yourself that vulnerability. Part of relationships, whether they're with family, whether they're platonic, whether they're romantic, is that you open yourself up to be hurt. You open yourself up to some kind of injury. And it sounds like you're not necessarily willing to undertake that risk. No, going to local events because not wanting to go to local events rather because you're afraid of people figuring out quote unquote what I am. I mean, that sounds a little bit extreme. You know, one thing about the fandom that's really nice is that even though there is an outgoing element where these events that happen in public tend to be kind of crazy and everybody's like, oh my God, look at, you know, these weirdos. You know, part of the good thing about the fandom is that as a member of the fandom, there is a level of implicit trust where people don't contact your families and people don't contact your work and say, oh, hey, you won't believe what this person does, you know, when they're going on vacation. You won't believe where they were and send pictures of a room party that you were at where you're wandering around in underwear and a fursuit hat. The reason that a lot of people don't even communicate, you know, their their actual name, their real life name in fandom circles is to kind of insulate themselves from that. And, and that's completely understandable. There are lots of people within the fandom that I only know by their name from Twitter or their fur name. I don't know their real name. I don't know really much about them other than the information that they present. When you get close to people, though, that's when people find out that information. And you need to allow yourself that vulnerability. You need to allow yourself to focus down on who you are as a person, focus down on these interests. And, you know, from the way that you write some of these things, you need to allow yourself to have friends that are interested in other topics. You mentioned that it's difficult for you to find people that are interested in engineering or physics or, you know, hard science, we'll call it. I mean, the good thing about furries is that there's a lot of STEM majors. There's a lot of people. I mean, Vero, you're a scientist, goddammit. I mean, I'm a scientist. Yes, I, am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a science degree. Um, granted, it's maybe less hard than Vero's. Um, oh, Mer. Oh, I know. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, you know, within the fandom, a lot of people tend to go the STEM route. You have a lot of computer scientists, you have a lot of engineers. There's a lot of shared commonalities between your interests and the interests within the fandom. It may be that in your locale that maybe that's not the way that everybody's going, but I can, I, if, if I had a dime for every time that I met a furry that was in construction, that was in a science field that shared one of the many interests that you list, I mean, I would have enough money to fund the show for probably the next 20 years. So, you know, there's that. 
When it comes to the idea of stranger danger, part of the thing about the fandom is that you do have to take time to get to know new people. There are some groups that are a little bit cliquish, and that's unfortunate. Where if you have a new person that comes in, they're not maybe as willing to to engage with the new person, and it takes time for them to warm up. And you know, until there's that warming up phase, they're just like, "Oh, you're a stranger," and they make jokes about stranger danger. I would question. If these people, if, if these individuals that are saying stranger danger are, are seeing it in a joking fashion, or maybe you're coming off in a way that may not be at your best. So you might want to evaluate how it is that you're engaging with people when you meet them for the first time. Maybe you don't go all out and say, well, I'm this and I'm interested in this. And, you know, maybe you're being a little bit too aggressive when you meet people, especially at these distant events. Maybe you need to be a little bit more maybe you don't need to be as outgoing. And again, this could go down to being socially awkward. I am socially awkward as fuck. Like you have no idea. I used to be so bad again that I wouldn't even answer the phone. Like if it was the delivery man calling to tell me that my order was ready, I'd just go to the door, slightly crack it open. Like social awkwardness in me, like we are best friends. That is my first love. And fortunately I've been able to kind of break up with it. Social awkwardness takes time to get over, and it takes a group of friends that understand your social awkwardness, and it sounds like the friends that you have and even the family members that you have are not willing to go through that, or maybe you haven't even communicated that with them. You know, there's a lot going on with you, and it sounds like you have a lot to figure out for yourself. And when it comes to relationships, knowing how you are and what you are is a very important factor into becoming, you know, entering into a long, loving stable relationship. And of course, changes happen throughout the course of a relationship. That's natural. But going into a relationship thinking that you might be bisexual when in fact you're asexual, that might be viewed by your partner as a bait and switch. I would recommend that you take time or you're open with potential partners about the fact that you're uncertain or questioning these things. I wouldn't necessarily lay it on the table. I wouldn't go to a firm meet and be like, hi, you know, my name is Metrico and I don't know if I'm asexual or bisexual. Um, but like, I'm looking for a mate and, you know, coming across that way again, not saying you are, but you want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. And that when you talk about these things, you're doing it in a context that makes sense. Um, you know, your friends that you mentioned that are, you know, you, you say that they're kind of jerks. Um, I mean, maybe you find other friends, you know, just because you grew up with somebody, just because they've been a friend for five years, doesn't mean that they need to be a friend for five more years. You know, take time to take stock and to figure out what exactly you're investing in your life and what is truly important in your life. For some people, their interests in, you know, physics might be more important in the time being than their interest in, say, the fandom. And so they let the fandom take a back seat. Um, I know plenty of people that when they go off to college, they're just like, well, you know, the fandom, that's really nice and fun and I really enjoy it. But for the time being, I'm not going to engage in it because I have other things to focus on. I would recommend that you take time to reevaluate what you're focusing on and what is really important for you in both the short term and the long term. If you're primary focus is in getting into a relationship, then you do need to work on that social awkwardness. Then you do need to figure out who you are. Then you do need to refine yourself and to focus yourself because without that focus, again, you're going to find relationships to be incredibly unstable and you're going to find even friendships, even within the fandom are going to be very difficult to maintain. So, you know, it's, it's, 
living at home is completely fine. Living with parents, that's completely fine. Lots of people our age are doing that up into their 30s. But you need to make sure, especially if you're an adult, that you are asserting some sense of agency. And if your parents are putting in rules and policies that you can't necessarily you know, live with or can stomach, then it might be time for you to perhaps, if you are of an age and you do have a stable income, to maybe find a way for you to spread your wings and fly outside of, you know, the, the confines of your parents' house or their basements. So again, just take time to focus on who you are, take time to really address the things that matter more and don't focus necessarily so much on getting into a relationship when you don't necessarily know what you have to offer in that relationship. Um, Vero, I mean, you're, you're far more sciencey than I am being the science colleague. Do you have any advice for, for the science Science, science guy, science dragon. Well, I mean, the only thing I would say here is that, you know, when I was focusing on academics and things in college and high school, I basically had no social life whatsoever, but that was a choice that I actively made. I didn't try to do everything at once. I didn't try to focus on becoming an excellent scientist and mastering organic chemistry and also on figuring out my sexuality and dating all at the same time, because that would have been completely impossible and overwhelming and miserable, and I couldn't have done it. So... You know, it's okay to compartmentalize your life a little bit in terms of time. Um, if you want to focus it on, you know, your interests that are not relationship-based for now, that's totally fine to do. But realize that everything you do is an active choice that you make. Don't feel like if you choose to focus on things like your interests, that, you know, that makes means that you're, you know, lonely because you're a bad person or something like that. No, you're choosing to be alone because you're pursuing something else that is of interest to you. And that's an active choice that you're making. So, that should help you with the loneliness to realize that it's a choice. You're not, you're not, you know, in some kind of exile, you are choosing to focus on things that are maybe a bit more esoteric, maybe a bit more solitary. And that's totally fine to make that choice. Even if other people in the fandom might not choose to make that choice. So that's totally fine to do. Uh, don't necessarily try to do everything at once. As Metrico said, focus is important. If you do want to prioritize relationships in your life right now, that does mean doing a lot of hard work and introspection to figure out exactly what it is that you want, what it is that you're looking for, and perhaps to overcome some of these fears that you're experiencing about engaging socially and being outed for being social uh, with other people. Um, in, another issue, too, you talk about stranger danger. Uh, one of the great things about being in the fandom is that very few of us are, are truly strangers to each other because there aren't very many degrees of separation in the fandom. So if you're active on Twitter or active somewhere else, you can, uh, in social media that is free, you can not only you know, interact with an individual person, uh, but you can also see who they interact with. And you develop this sort of network effect where you might not know someone, but if you're friends with three of their friends and all three of those friends can vouch for this person, you then know that they can't be all that bad because apparently these people who you trust and value see this person as having value. It doesn't mean that stranger danger is completely uh, gone from that scenario. But it does mean that, you know, people are vouching for this person by virtue of the fact that they're in a friendship or in a relationship with that person. So getting more engaged in social media might actually be one way that you could help yourself get over this stranger danger effect. Uh, and that, that might be really uh, useful to you. But for, for sure, you know, don't, don't punish yourself for choosing to make choices that mean that you're not pursuing relationships because you're not obligated to be in a relationship at any one point in your life. I made the choice to not be in relationships for all four years of college, and I didn't have any relationships during that time. But it wasn't because I uh, failed to find anyone. It's because I didn't allow myself to look. So 
you know, if, again, if it's a choice you're making, you shouldn't feel too bad about that. I saved dating and figuring out my sexuality and all that stuff until I was in graduate school because I didn't want to have to worry about that when I was trying to nail down my undergraduate academics. So again, it's totally fine to focus on things that are solitary interests, but don't punish yourself if you, cho you do choose to make that choice. All right, so we're going to move on to our next question. Um, do you know or know somewhere to get more information on what to do after playing with certain substances like shaving foam, slime, etc.? So I mean, I think that the flippant answer is to take a shower, right? Well, yeah, that's the flippant answer. <laughs> so for people that are on, you know, kind of unfamiliar, we're talking about gunging or sploshing or wet and messy here, and. It's a type of play that involves the use of shaving foam, some food items, slime or gunge as it's known in uh, the UK, and it's it's fun. A lot of it is kind of non-sexual in terms of uh, a lot of it isn't going to be done in the nude. It's done with wetsuits or clothing, and it ties into other types of fetishes. Um, some general advice. Um, there's a lot in terms of pre-planning and post-planning that you have to do here. So when it comes to the pre-planning... Um, you want to make sure that you're doing this in an area that can be easily cleaned. Um, typically, you want to do this in a bathtub. Um, if you don't have access to like a tub or someplace, get a tarp, get some kind of you know towels that you can easily pick up and throw into the washing machine or hose yeah, down. One, one thing for people who like doing wet and messy play in like a bed setting, you might actually just consider getting a vinyl mattress cover. They're usually meant to protect the mattress from people like bed wetters and things like that, but they also work really well for wet and messy play. So you can actually just take all the sheets and everything that's you know, like that, that's on the bed, take all that stuff off, just use the mattress with a vinyl mattress protector on it. And you can do a little bit of kind of, you know, if you want to do that intimate sort of cuddly, wet, messy play in bed, you can do it on top of the mattress cover. And then that's actually pretty easy just to wipe off and clean. Yeah. And then once that dries off, you can put the sheets back on. It's like nothing ever happened. So that might be one way that you could pursue that if you want to be doing a bedroom uh, based uh, wet and messy play. Yeah. Um, some other advice that we can give is make sure that you have all of your ingredients and items open and ready, because when you start getting a little bit wet and messy, um, you know, it can be a little bit difficult to get food containers or any kind of like receptacles open. Now, one thing to mention is that, um, and this is kind of a big kind of, um, I guess, misconception that people have. When we refer to what a messy, we're referring to the use of you know, um, food items, slime, shaving cream, whipped cream, wet and messy does not refer to, um, things that, you know, um, coccophilia or, you know, any kind of piss play, water sports, anything that involves body fluids that is completely separate. Um, if you're doing play that involves body fluids, that, that is not what a messy, um, some people get the two confused. So when it comes to aftercare though, if you do things, um, kind of planned out. You have a tarp, you have some towels, you have an easy kind of cleanup. When it comes to cleaning yourself up though, um, just use dish soap. Dish soap really helps get a lot of things off of your body. If you have sensitivity to dish soap, I would recommend something like a Castile soap. I use, um, just in general, I use Dr. Bronner's, which is a Castile soap. Um, you want to also avoid getting, um, certain food items, um, you know, around your genitals, um, because that can lead to infections, especially if you have some skin sensitivities. So make sure if you're doing any play that involves food items like chocolate syrup or anything like that, try to keep it away from your genitals. And if it does get down there, you know, be gentle when you do your cleaning because you don't want to irritate the skin anymore. So, um, 
keep some trash bags as well. Like if you're doing play that involves, you know, clothes getting torn off or anything like that, or if you're wearing clothes that you're never going to wear again, just go ahead and just keep some trash bags open and ready for you to just kind of junk everything, put everything into one nice, you know, trash bag, fold it up, put it out, you know, with the garbage, and then you're good to go take a shower and your gunge play is done. So just dish soap, nice, gentle soap, baby soap works especially well if you have some skin sensitivities and, you know, just have fun with it. But um, definitely take some forethought into the way that you plan it. Um, tarps, towels, dark colored towels, um, vinyl covers for beds. Um, these are all cheap, you know, inexpensive ways that you can make sure that you're not ruining your your house or your apartment for your play. Um, so our next question um, and this is something that I think Vero should take because it's definitely within his wheelhouse, um, but it deals with yep. the idea of crushing on a mated owner. Yeah, I'll go ahead and read that one mm-hmm. then if you don't mind. Yes. Sure. So it goes, okay, I'm a little stuck. I've been in a uh, real life, slightly long distance, ma- ma- mistress pet relationship with someone for nearly six months now. We're both super happy with it, but lately I've noticed I've been developing rather strong feelings for her. That. Wouldn't be a bad thing, excuse me, except that she's already mated and has, uh, be- and has been since before she took me in. A little backstory. I've been in and out of collars for years, uh, as many as six years. And 95% of these uh, relationships have been online, and almost all of them have fallen apart one way or another, mostly through me being a derp, getting freaked out, or getting so into the submissive headspace I do something really stupid, then try to back out of it so often they get tired and leave. Not some of my best moments. But other times, they've actually had bad owners. I've been searching for someone local for a few years now, and now that I actually have someone, I'm ecstatic. With her, I'm not scared, nervous, haven't done anything dumb. I'm happy, and she's happy. So fast forward. She already has a mate. I'm concerned that my feelings might grow too strong, since I've almost never been in a situation like this. I don't want to risk this relationship from a desire that really can't be realized, but at the same time, I don't want to lose the collar and the happiness. I've already spoken with her a few times, and she's fine being friends if that's the choice, but I don't want to, I don't know, downgrade, unless I have to. And as a side note, this is not sexual, so I don't have to worry about that component. Any tips? Soul-searching? And sorry for all the blabbering at the start, I feel the backstory was needed to show where I'd come from. So, in a nutshell, currently owned, developing major crush on my mated owner. Tips. Okay, so there's a few things going on here. One thing that I think really makes this situation to me seem a lot less scary than it would be otherwise is you mentioned that you've been communicating a lot with your mistress about how you're feeling and where things are at. And she's already reassuring you that if you know feelings get out of hand, that you can you know downgrade to being just friends and, and things will be okay. So it sounds like you're really having a lot of fears here. It's very normal during uh, the beginning stages or even the middle stages of a uh, master pet or mistress pet relationship to have extremely strong infatuation type feelings for a mistress or a master if you're a submissive or and oftentimes it goes the other way around as well that's extremely common so when you you know you don't want to necessarily round all of that up to being madly in love with your mistress it's perfectly fine to enjoy those feelings and sort of revel in those feelings without worrying about how meaningful they are in terms of what your relationship with that person needs to look like. It's totally fine to feel those really strong infatuation type feelings with a um, master or mistress you're really connecting with, and that's totally normal. 
um, it's not at all unusual to feel that way. And you said, you know, sometimes you've gotten really too deep in the submissive headspace. You've gotten too infatuated. You've made commitments you couldn't keep or said things you shouldn't have and things then got messy. And it sounds like you've learned from a lot of those mistakes and that you aren't doing that with her. So I think a lot of your fears are, are born from previous mistakes that you've made in other uh, DS-type relationships. It doesn't sound like a whole lot is actually going wrong in this relationship, though. You said you're not scared, you're not nervous, you haven't done anything dumb, you're happy, she's happy. I'm not really seeing the problem here, except for the fact that you feel like you might eventually want to be her mate, and that's not really on the table. Um, that's something you're just going to have to get used to the idea of, that you can have this relationship that you, um, you know, you can have this relationship that you can enjoy, but it's not going to be a primary type romantic connection. And if you can't kind of acclimate to that idea and can't get used to that, uh, you're going to have to, you know, if it, and it starts to bother you to the point you can't enjoy the relationship anymore, all you're feeling is longing. You're not feeling any pleasure from the, mas the mistress-pet dynamic any longer, then you'll need to end it and maybe downgrade to being friends or just stop having contact with this person. But I don't think it makes sense for you to be freaking out about the possibility that you might develop really strong feelings for her or that you might want to be in a relationship with her and then prevent yourself from actually enjoying the relationship that you do have with her. So, you know, again, try to keep your expectations in check. Try not to let your brain run away with you and round up your connection with her into something that it isn't. Uh, enjoy it for what it is. And if you stop being able to do that, then allow the relationship to reach its natural conclusion. Uh, it doesn't sound like there's really anything else to worry about here. Uh, I feel like you're, you're, you're kind of creating a problem where there really necessarily isn't one until you get to that point when your feelings are so incredibly strong that you can't enjoy the connection any longer without it being romantic, without it being a full-on loving connection. And if you do get to that point, then you are going to have to break it off because you can't be encouraging her to cheat romantically on her partner, whoever that might be. And of course, one other thing that I might suggest um, is this is a mistress who is in a relationship and is able to take you as a pet. Uh, that means to me that this isn't necessarily a 100% necessarily monogamous commitment on your mistress's part to uh, her uh, partner. And you might actually, you know, I'm not sure if you've had this conversation, but perhaps there is some uh, wiggle room there for you to have some type of connection with your mistress that is more than just the mistress-pet dynamic. Perhaps your mistress's partner, if he got to know you, would be comfortable with you having a bit more of a connection with her than you do presently. Not saying that that's, that's a given by any means, but this doesn't sound like such a monogamous commitment that um, that's completely out of the question because, again, uh, people who are very into BDSM also tend to be at least a bit more open to the ideas about non-monogamy and uh, polyamory. So that's not a subject that I would broach immediately, but it's something where, you know, maybe having a few friendly interactions with your mistress's partner just, you know, to, to establish the fact that you exist, that you're, you're not a terrible person, that you're not in this to break them up or to do anything horrible in their relationship, um, get that partner kind of used to your presence and your, your connection with your mistress. And then perhaps eventually, if, you know, some trust starts being built up, you can have that conversation about whether or not it's, there's any, you know, possibility for that connection to be more than it is. But I wouldn't so much worry about, you know, abandoning this or breaking it off for fear of that, uh, you know, 
connection growing because I feel like that's just cheating you out of this connection that you say that you really value. So uh, the TLDR on my advice would be to enjoy what it is that you do have, perhaps work on getting to know your mistress's partner in a friendly way, not a, not a, you know, I'm getting to know you because I want your, your mistress, but I'm getting to know you for the sake of getting to know you, um, develop some trust there and then see where things develop. Um, if you can get your mistress's partner to be extremely empathetic with you and empathetic to your needs, it might be that he even suggests something of that nature. So, you know, it really all depends on who the people are who are involved, what their relationship terms are, what their history is. You don't go into any of that. I'm not sure if you've had any of those conversations, but it isn't necessarily the case that you are um, completely out of luck here. You might be able to even round this up into something more uh, as time goes on. But what I wouldn't worry about uh, is you know, trying to end this before it even begins or even before it continues because you're so concerned. That, I feel like, would be cheating yourself a bit. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on that, Metrico? No, that does. That pretty much sums it up. It's. Um, I was pretty much just going to focus on the idea that you're worried about eventualities that could happen. It doesn't make sense to try to mitigate in a relationship because you might develop a feeling, so it's better to not you know, go the distance because you're afraid that you might... No, it's it's I I agree with everything that you've said here, Vero. Um, you know, take time to have that discussion with your mistress, and I mean, if worse comes to worse, it sounds like she's willing to be friends with you. And you know, having a friend isn't necessarily a downgrade; it's just a shift in the relationship dynamic. So don't view it as a downgrade; just view it as, you know, a transition in a relationship. And transitions in relationship happen. You know, relationships happen all the time. So. Uh, we do have one last question. Um, the The subject for this, the message uh, came titled, does it make sense to hope for a mate with my conditions or am I doomed to live without love? Um, well, I might be an exception, something that is rarely found, I guess. I have never had a mate in my life and I'm in my 30s. What includes, I have never kissed someone or I, nor have I been intimate with another, with a male. Cuddling and kissing might be okay for me, but if a mate wanted to go beyond that point to engage in sexual activities, it would be too much for me because I would feel highly uncomfortable with that. Seeing intimate furry art is fine with me, but in real life I would just prefer to be on the cuddly and romantic side. I am a female that is affected by a schizoid um, personality disorder, so I have issues to trust new people, and if their influence starts to overwhelm me, I feel then the need to seek safety in bringing distance between me and them. I have lived my current life without any affection, which I nonetheless miss and desire. There is mutual love, but the few times I felt love for a male, I got rejected and ended with emotional instability, feeling not wanted, and that there won't be someone for me. It's hard for me to feel something like attraction towards others or a connection, so that I would feel welcome. As a friend of mine told me, a girl confessed her feelings for him. You know, I felt like finding a mate and loving just only happens to others, not me. In the recent time, I have been often wondering about if hoping for a mate makes sense to me, for me, and if my condition, uh, you know, if it makes sense for me and my condition, or if it is just a lost cause because I'm too screwed up for others in order to be considered as a mate. It makes me depressed, although I try to lift my spirits by saying I'm a great artist who is able to depict things in a realistic way, but it doesn't silence the inner pain. Sorry you receive a question from someone who has never had a mate, but I don't know who else I could ask. Um, so it sounds like you might be asexual, just kind of swinging the bat on this. Um, and that's, that's perfectly fine. 
you know, you can be asexual and have a deeply emotionally involved relationship. Asexual individuals don't like they don't not have sex, and that's something that you can pursue. But it sounds like you might be asexual, and that's that's great. You know, that's just who you are. You know, being in your thirties, not having a relationship—that's one thing. But um, Vero, do you have any input on this? Yeah, I, I've mm-hmm. basically ran into heart with what you were saying, Metrico. I think there might be some asexuality or gray sexuality going on here, and I think turning to the asexuality community might be a place to actually go looking for a relationship. Because if you get involved in an asexuality forum or you start engaging with other people, and maybe even going to local meetups for people who are asexual or gray sexual, you might meet someone. Uh, who is male, who has a very similar situation to yours and might, you know, indulge in one indulge in exactly the activities that you do and have the exact same limits that you do. And that could be a very rewarding relationship. Um, you might also similarly seek out people uh, on a forum for the type of uh, mental disorder that you say that you have. Um, people, who, uh, yeah, people who are most likely to understand what it is that you're going through are people who've had similar issues themselves. And honestly, a lot of relationships are built on empathy and shared trauma. And so if you can relate to someone who's gone through very similar issues, you might actually develop a romantic connection with someone else who has the same trust issues, who has the same issues that you do. And again, you know, turning to that community might be a place to look for someone who is looking for something similar to what you want, but maybe it's just the male version of that. Um, you're, I would say that you know, if you're trying to just date in the general community at large, you are going to have more issues because there's a lot more assumptions there about things like sex happening and about how quickly intimacy is going to ramp up and things like that. So um, I do think maybe turning to more specialized communities that are more likely to be empathetic with your needs is going to be the way to go here. I don't think you're ineligible for affection or ineligible for love, but I do think you need to have a slightly more targeted approach in terms of where it is you're looking for those things. Yeah, uh, that was pretty much my advice as well. It sounds like you're I, – I, I don't really like using the idiom, but it sounds like you might be looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, within the general public, there is a predisposition where if you're approached with somebody that does have um, a mental disorder of some kind, they're you – know, yeah, the, the, the tendency is to be like, well, there are plenty of other fish in the sea. The thing is, is that everybody is worth of love and everybody is worth of affection. And you are, regardless of whatever condition you might have, whether it's a physical disability, a mental disability, everybody is worth it. Everybody is worthy of having love in their life. So it's it's just a matter of finding it. And again, I would recommend kind of what Vera said, you know, go to specialized forums where people who have a similar, you know, condition as yours or you know, people who are allies or family members of individuals that have these conditions go for support and you find communities that align with your own interests, artists, communities, asexual communities, perhaps even. And you might find that your options and your opportunities are a little bit more positive there because there is an understanding of your individual needs. Um, male, female, it doesn't really matter in terms of your gender in this. You just have to make sure that you're going about this in a way that is sensible. Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are either. You know, you could be a 40 year old virgin, a 70 year old virgin, a 20 year old virgin. It doesn't matter when you start looking or when you find love. All that matters is that you do find love and it can take time to. 
So don't don't put like a time limit on it where, well, if I'm, you know, if by next year I haven't found a partner, then I'm just going to swear off love and get cats. Uh, you know, there's no need for that, even though I've told myself that multiple times in my life. Um, just Just be patient with yourself. And it sounds like you have a great understanding of who you are as an individual. It sounds like you're very empathetic towards your own needs. And now you just need to find somebody who understands your needs and somebody that is willing to make that investment in your life and somebody that's willing to allow you to invest in theirs. So don't allow the, you know, the previous rejections that you've had get in the way of your future happiness. You know, the past is the past. Learn from what happened and take those lessons into the future. So uh, anything else you want to add, Vero, or... Nope, I think that pretty much wraps it up, actually. We can probably move on to our feedback. Yeah, so we do have some feedback, and uh, that was our last question. So, again, thank you very much, everybody, for submitting your questions. If you have any feedback on those, if you have questions of your own, uh, feel free to submit them to our contact page on our website at uh, feralattraction.com. Many ways you can send us questions, contact forms, emails, telegrams, all of those good things. the feedback that we received was from Telegram, and it was concerning uh, silicone toys on our, uh, you know, uh, toying 101 episode from last week. Um, the feedback is consider storing silicone toys in towels to protect the sensitive material, and also warm silicone toys to body temperature for a more realistic, sensual feel. Um, those are both really great suggestions. You do want to make sure that you are, you know, storing your toys in a way that doesn't damage them. Silicone. Um, can tend to be a little bit more sensitive. That's why you want to make sure that after use, you do clean it thoroughly and make sure that it's dry and make sure that it's stored in a place that isn't full of like sharp objects. You don't want to throw it into your junk drawer and just pray that a pen doesn't puncture it. Um, warming silicone. Although I have to say a junk drawer does sound appropriate <laughs> for storing your dildos. <laughs> Maybe if it's just a drawer full of dildos, then that can be your junk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when it comes to warming a, uh, warming a silicone toy, you want to make sure that you don't warm it too too hot. You, I would recommend you warm it, uh, maybe not all the way up to body temperature, but maybe warm it up to room temperature. Um, use warm water, just submerge it into warm water for a few minutes and allow it to get a little bit warm. And then just uh, use it like you typically would apply lube. And if you use a condom, put a condom and then lube and all of that good stuff. And you'll have a good time. Uh, the issue is, is that if you warm it a little bit too hot... Some people have um, difficulty in discerning what body temperature is, and you don't want to use a thermometer and you know a bowl of water while you're warming your toy. Um, you can actually burn yourself a little bit, or it can be less sensual and realistic and more burny, burny, ow, get it out, get it out. So I would recommend room temperature as opposed to um, body temperature. Yeah, you can go a little bit above room temperature, but just make sure it's not... Um, you know, you want to make sure that you can, when you're done warming the toy, that you can grip that toy firmly and you're, and hold on to it for a protracted period of time and not have to feel any impulse to remove your hand from the toy. Yeah. That is a good uh, rule of thumb for when you're, you know, thinking of warming something up that you're going to be putting inside of you. Make sure that you can grip it firmly without feeling any impulse to uh, kind of remove your grip uh, for at least a number of seconds, and then you know that it's still in the range of being not warm enough to, to burn, and then you can probably go ahead and use that. I tend to err on the safe side because ouchie, ouchie, burn. I I, I like avoiding the hospital. <laughs> so fair enough. Not into the medical play. I mean, yeah, 
Uh, At least not not into the receiving end yeah. of the medical play. I should specify. Yeah, let's say not as the patient, maybe. <laughs> so anyhow, thank you for your feedback. And um, again, thank you for all the kind words that you had to say. So again, if you have questions, feedback, concerns, comments, criticisms, you want to tell me that you want to fight me in real life, send us a message. Again, visit our contact page. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about maintaining the spark, how to keep that new relationship energy rolling all relationship long, well, to the extent possible. We're going to talk about relationships that go on for a long period of time. Maybe you get married and you're five years in, 10 years in, and you're finding that it's a little bit difficult to keep that you know, initial spark going. We're going to talk about ways that you can get that spark back and keep it rolling. Yeah, we're going to have advice that applies to monogamous couples. We're going to have advice for polyamorous couples. It's going to be great. Or polyamorous couples, polyamorous quads, polyamorous polycules, whatever. Um, yeah, there you go. I should. Have, <laughs> I love how at the top of the show I was criticizing uh, couples' privilege and stuff, and then at the end I say polyamorous couples. That's oh, yeah. wonderful. Good. Good job, Vero. A plus. It, it's it's almost like you don't run a podcast for relationships or have like five <laughs> boyfriends or something like that. Yeah, I geez. I give up. I I mean, clearly you're you're you just hate polyamory like that's that's a clearly <laughs> god damn it so we're really looking forward to next week because it is a question we get quite often how do you get a relationship you know that's five years in to feel like it's the first day in so really looking forward to that discussion thank you very much for joining us on this question show hope that you enjoyed it hope that you might have learned something from it and again if you have anything please feel free to hit us up um you know, if you're if you're feeling in a giving mood, um, we do have a Patreon that you can subscribe to to become one of our patrons. We do have several tiers. Those go for helping us get research documents to be able to improve the quality of the contents of the show, to maintain our website and our ad space on various websites. Some of you found us through our advertisements, um, through convention booklets, and also on uh, for Affinity and Sofury. So. You know, your your ability to become a patron helps contribute to that. Yeah, we try to be a little bit more transparent than Donald Trump is with his taxes, at least. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. It's it's. I did love the burn about how every book of uh, Donald Trump's about business tends to end at chapter 11. That made me laugh like a schoolgirl. Oh, it was so good. But um, it's it's one other thing is that if you're not you know able to contribute uh, financially, then please consider giving us a rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you heard this. Um, maybe consider leaving a comment on our website about what you liked and didn't like about this episode. Any contribution that you're able to make goes a long way in helping us out. So thank you very much to everybody who contributes. Thank you very much to everybody who listens. You are all awesome. So... On that note, I think we're going to wrap it up for the week. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well.